from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, once again from New Orleans, which uh, for the last couple of weeks at least has been sort of the musical capital of the universe, the, the known universe. Uh, amazing stuff going on here. Still a little bit more before everybody flees. Always going to be hot now. Um, and this is a, a special edition of this. Pro- I, I know all of the editions of this program are special. Reaching back more than three decades. But this one is really special because uh, a storied, venerated voice of public radio has announced that he's retiring. And uh, so our colleagues at Continental Public Radio will be paying tribute to him uh, a little later in this broadcast. And um, I do want to say I am loath, ladies and gentlemen, to share personal experiences with you on this broadcast. It's not for that. That's what I have friends and family for. But um, And also, I think it's unseemly uh, for well-to-do people to be complaining about first-world problems. It's just, you know, ugh. On the other hand, I do have, when one has useful information to impart in a uh, consumer-oriented way, it's uh, not responsible to withhold it. What the heck am I talking about? Well, I've I've gone solar, uh, so I'm, I'm doing my bit, even though I fly more than I should, but I go where the work is. Um, but I also bought an electric car and um, was thrilled with it. It's the one you've heard of, the one that's been hyped most. And uh, all of a sudden, things changed. So I'm not going to talk about it here, as I say. But if you're considering buying a little electric car and would like some consumer advice, just write me. The email address is at uh, harryshare.com. And I'll, I'll tell you what I know. Um, the headline version for broadcast purposes is it's customer service that would make AT&T retreat in shame. But now, news of Nice Corp. Who's going to save you from fake news? Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had the item that J. Walter Thompson, the worldwide advertising agency, was going to help try to help save you from fake news. Because they, they know the truth when they don't tell it. Now, Nice Corp is introducing a new service to ensure that online ads don't appear next to fake news or offensive videos. This is the b- billionaire Rupert Murdoch mo- uh, long battle with the world's biggest search engine. It's Murdoch versus Google. There's no one to root for. New, nice, nice Corporation has a um, subsidiary called Storyful, which filters th- through social media for publishers and brands, and they're now going to track websites known as purveyors of fake news or extremist content and share that list with advertisers who can use it to keep ads from appearing in controversial places like Fox News, I mean, other places. That, not, not that, but it's pitched as a full blockade against content that's anathema to marketers as Google and Facebook face pressure for failing to offer such tools. We're all such tools, aren't we? Google has taken heat for YouTube over a concern that advertisers had that their ads could appear next to offensive videos. This will be one way to give advertisers peace of mind said Chief Executive Officer of Storyful, Rahul Chopra. He's the non-enlightened Chopra, I guess. 
I'm, I'm just guessing. Um, that's news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. The B story just gets more interesting, more complicated. Neonicotinoid pesticides hinder wild queen bees, particularly the queen bumblebees, reproductive success. That's according to a new study from the University of Guelph. The study is the first to link exposure to one of the most commonly used neonics to fewer fully developed eggs in queens from four wild bumblebee species that uh, forage around in the farmland. Queen bees will lay eggs only when the eggs are fully developed, says the leader of the study. If they need to use energy to clear pesticides from their system instead of investing in eggs, then fewer fully developed eggs are resulting. This will likely translate into slower egg-laying rates, which will then impede colony development and growth. The study was published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B, letter B, not B-E-E. That's just a happy coincidence. The researchers examined the impacts of exposing queen bumblebees to the neonic during the spring when they emerge from hibernation and are preparing to lay their first eggs. Given the role that spring queens, don't get excited, have in maintaining bumblebee colonies, we decided to focus on assessing the impacts at this stage of the life cycle, said the researcher. About 500 queen bees from four species were caught and for two weeks were fed syrup, treated with pesticide doses similar to the levels found in pollen and nectar in the wild. Across all four species, the queen bees that were given higher doses had smaller, less developed eggs than the queens not exposed. And uh, the queens also, from two of the four species, ate less nectar after the exposure. If their feeding rates drop off, the queens go into a dormant state. They won't have enough energy to fly or to collect pollen to feed their larvae. They might might not even have the resources to lay eggs at all. These are different from honeybees, which have been mostly talked about with regard to neonics. Um, you know, if uh, if we lose our pollinators... Cannibalism starts looking good, doesn't it? Hello, welcome to the show. Well, now you just been looking at the number one. Only thing you worry about is having your fun. But sign of trouble, baby, misunderstood. You will kick on while the going still good. You're so very unnecessarily mercenary.
Schlorman, Continental Public Radio's special correspondent. It was almost three decades ago that a slender man with prematurely thinning hair walked into a small studio on Guam Avenue in Washington, D.C., and co-anchored the first broadcast of Up to Here, CPR's first daily news magazine. I know because I was his co-anchor. Now, time-appropriately bald, that man, Milton Getzler, has announced his retirement. Not to be a special correspondent, but to be whatever his fancy dictates, except being a special correspondent. One of my favorite of Milton's wonderful interviews was this one, from late in the Bush administration. From CPR, Continental Public Radio, this is All in All. All in All, CPR's weekly attempt to bring what's behind the news in front of the news and leave it there. I'm Aviva Schlorman in Washington. This week, the Department of Defense announced it would stop giving special briefings to the military analysts who appear in television news networks and here on CPR. The New York Times has reported that those briefings were designed to spread the Pentagon's view of the Iraq war under the guise and gals of independent analysis. CPR special correspondent Milton Getzler has been talking to our own military analyst, retired Major General Oliver Kilman, about these briefings. And here's his report. You've heard General Kilman on these microphones perhaps hundreds of times, but never before in his new role as CPR's military analysis analyst. General Kilman, welcome back. Thank you, Milton. Uh, you got new drapes. <laughs> the studio has been freshened up a bit. Yes, sir. General Kilman, how do you analyze the Pentagon's decision to end its briefings for military analysts? Milton, I look at it uh, the way I look at any military campaign. Uh, that's really only one of two perspectives I can use, frankly. Just out of curiosity, what's the other one? Whether it helps my company land a defense contract. Well, I think we'd agree you've chosen the appropriate way of looking at it. Uh, I think so. So uh, the Pentagon has uh, or had an objective to counter what it viewed as the overly negative view of what the Pentagon does. Its target was hearts and minds, a target uh, folks in the military have some familiarity with. The only difference being these hearts and minds belonged to uh, our own populace. So a, a closer, more familiar target. That's right. You could look at uh, the briefing program, therefore, as a classic uh, pincers maneuver, in which the uh, analysts were not two, but several dozen uh, pincers, individual pincers, all approaching the target from different vectors. Mm -hmm. Those vectors being the various networks and channels and so forth? Yes, sir. Uh, now, the A-154 is a perfect vehicle for this uh, mission. What is the A-154? Uh, it's, uh, it's a briefing jet. So it's it's neither a bomber, nor a, a fighter, nor a cargo aircraft. Negative, sir. It, it is a briefer. It uh, carries usually a payload of about uh, 
35 analysts and uh, 10 PIMs. And, and PIMs are, are weapons? Well, in this particular campaign, sure, you could call them that. They're population influence modulators. By design, each of them is responsible for no less than 1 million human influenciation episodes, or HIEs, each week. These are machines? <laughs> They're humans, sir, at least at, at this stage of technology. <laughs> They're what the press calls briefers, but since that's what the military calls aircraft in which the analysts are flown to their PIOs or private impression opportunities, uh, the men and women are uh, differentiated by the uh, previous acronym. PIMs. Yes, sir. So uh, the AWOL-54s are deployed on an as-needed basis to fly the MAs, military analysts. Uh, yes, that's correct, Milton. To uh, fly them to uh, FSVs, the forward staging venues, in Iraq and Washington, occasionally in, Afga- in Afghanistan, wherever there was a need to engage in... Uh, Forward staging. Which is? Well, that's uh, basically a fully prepared information battleground that's in proximity to current uh, combat ops. Ah. And uh, are those CCOs? Or what CCOs? uh, Current combat ops? I've never heard that, no, sir. And and these are the places where the military analysts are are shown signs of positive achievements, progress, that sort of thing? Uh, they're exposed to carefully calibrated levels of PMIs. Oh, sorry to get caught up in all this terminology. But... Well, it's just a military way, Melton. Those are uh, pre-understood military infons. An infon is a unit of information. The briefers would work in platoons of twos and threes, uh, mutually reinforcing the inputting of the infons. The, the operation would normally take several hours. And then uh, back in this country, the analysts would complete the mission? Mm-hmm. By swarming the target in areas of opportunity, such as networks, op-ed pages, anywhere the target might be lurking. The mission had a high level of success in its early operations. Over 10 million infons were successfully migrated onto the target population during just the first three months of Operation Brain Rush. That was uh, the first operation in this campaign? That's correct. That's, uh, I must admit, that's an awful lot of infunds. Uh, 250,000 on this network alone. So with that kind of success in the background, mm-hmm. why is the military abandoning the mission now? Well, as I understand it, Milton, and obviously I haven't been thoroughly briefed on this yet, but uh, my sources tell me the mission remains constant. It's just this particular way of attacking it has been human resource intensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been some loose marble problems. And uh, so there's been a, a, a massive technological up, upgrade. The, the target population remains constant. They'll be uh, dealt with uh, stealthily. How, how would that operate? As I understand it, uh, via the food supply. General Kilman, uh, the question we've kind of been avoiding during this interview, uh, as an analyst of this kind of thing, is it a good idea for the Defense Department to be engaged in such activities, targeting, as you yourself say, mm-hmm. the, the civilian population of its home country? Well, Melton, uh, your home country is your first line of defense. You could think of uh, local population as the legs undergirding the military table. So anything that uh, can strengthen that undergirding is just going to uh, increase the, the ultimate strength of the overgirding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, the only way I can evaluate good or bad uh, is in the context of my other analytical prism. Does it help my company get defense contracts? And uh, I'd have to say, frankly, any expenditure by the Defense Department is, is helpful from that point of view. General Kilman, as always, thanks for your time. Oh, I'm, I'm billing for it. Even so, thanks. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? It's hot in here. Thank you, Rob Lowe. Tornadoes and mobile homes don't mix. 
but throw in the volatility of climate change and the potential for massive property damage and deaths is even higher in coming decades. That's according to a new study by Michigan State University researchers. Spartans. The number of mobile homes in the United States has risen dramatically in the past 60 years to about 9 million. The U.S. is the most tornado-prone country in the world. We're number one in tornadoes. Think of it. Okay, you've thought of it. We have an average of 1,200 twisters a year, plus all the tornadoes. And scientists predict climate change will continue fueling more unstable weather events, including tornadoes, not tomatoes. The annual impact of tornadoes is expected to increase threefold over the next few decades due to the twin forces of increased climate volatility and growth in the human-built environment. That's according to the study, which is published in the journal Regional Science and Urban Economics. I read it for the title. If the climatologists are right about the continuing effects of climate change, says a co-author of the study, people living in mobile homes could be particularly vulnerable to to tornadoes in the years to come. Texas has the most tornadoes a year, 150, followed by Kansas, Oklahoma, and Florida. Florida also has the most mobile homes in the country, followed by Texas. Well, they can battle it out. There's a bush on each side, you know. If the climatologists are right about the continuing effects of climate change, yes, we, we already covered that. Researchers investigated underlying factors of tornado fatalities over the last few decades. The bulk of the deaths occurred in Tornado Alley, the region of the Midwest and Southeast. So sell, sell, sell. Sell your mobile home before the value plummets to, uh, you know, um, less, let's say. Or let's say less than less. Uh, but wait, there's more news of the warm, won't you? Coming right now. What would happen if we were suddenly exposed to deadly bacteria and viruses that have been absent for thousands of years that we've never met before, that we've never evolved any kind of immune response to? That's a question asked by the BBC in a recent piece. We may be about to find out, though. Climate change is melting permafrost. Soils that have been frozen for thousands of years, as the soils melt, they're releasing ancient viruses and bacteria that, having been dormant for, you know, the thousands of years, are now eager to spring back into life and bite you or eat you. In a remote corner of Siberia and tundra last year, a 12-year-old boy died. At least 20 people were hospitalized after being infected by anthrax, the theory is that over 75 years ago, a reindeer infected with anthrax, that's good news for Santa, died and its frozen carcass became trapped under a layer of permafrost. There it stayed until a heat wave last summer when it thawed. This exposed the reindeer corpse and released the anthrax into nearby water and soil and into the food supply. The fear is that this will not be an isolated case. More permafrost is melting. Global warming is gradually exposing older permafrost layers, the perfect place for bacteria to remain alive for very long periods of time, perhaps as long as a million years. Melting ice could theoretically open a Pandora's box of diseases. Well, Pandora must be immune. Let's ask her. Permafrost is a very good preserver of microbes and viruses because it's cold, there's no oxygen, and it is dark, says one of the... uh, Well, an evolutionary biologist, Jean-Michel Clavary at Marseille University in France. Pathogenic viruses that can infect... Also a good place for mushrooms, though, wouldn't it be? 
pathogenic viruses that can infect humans or animals might be preserved in old permafrost layers, including some that have caused global epidemics in the past. People and animals have been buried in permafrost for a century, so it's conceivable other infectious agents could be unleashed, like they've discovered intact 1918 Spanish flu virus in corpses buried in mass graves in Alaska's tundra. Smallpox and the bubonic plague are also likely buried in Siberia. Everything old is new again. A $4.4 million project to map sections of the Welsh coastline in more detail than ever before has begun. The five-year joint Welsh and Irish study. Hey, the Welsh and Irish are getting together. They both like to drink. It's just the Irish are more cheerful about it. The study aims to find out how quickly remote coastal areas in Wales are disappearing due to climate change, something they have in common with Louisiana. Data from the project will help the Welsh government to manage heritage sites and communities at risk. It'll create a better understanding of how to map this coastal erosion. The project is funded by the EU. Scientists have known for over a decade the West Antarctic ice sheet has been losing mass and contributing to sea level rise. Its eastern neighbor, though, is 10 times larger and has the potential to raise global sea level by a lot more were it to melt. Due to its large, uh, despite its large size and importance, conflicting results have been published on the recent behavior of the East ice sheet of Antarctica. A study led by a group of NASA scientists two years ago suggested this part of Antarctica was gaining so much mass it compensated for the losses in the West. A new team of scientists from University of Bristol and University of Wollongong, Australia, have studied the problem combining satellite observations within a statistical model. One of the uh, leaders of the study says... They conducted different experiments, and each one, mass loss from the West, always exceeded gains in the East. So overall, from 2003 to 2013, Antarctica has been contributing to sea level rise. The gains in the East were about three times smaller than suggested in the previous study. So don't buy homes in East Antarctica. Yeah, I'm giving you property advice. Just one of the things I do because... We're the good hands people here at the show.
I'm Ira Zipkin, CPR cultural editor. Milton Getzler has always straddled the line between being studiously aware of current trends and being happily oblivious towards them. I think this feature on the sharing economy was a wonderful example of his ability not only to straddle that line, but to own it. From CPR in Washington, I'm Milton Getzler, welcoming you to the rebooted 2015 edition of Said and Done. Said and Done, not only about the arts and the artsy, but now about the craft and the crafty as well. We'll meet the disruptors and the interrupters, the pie in the sky and the pioneers. And it's all here on Said and Done. Sharing, they say, is caring. Of course, they say a lot of things that rhyme, but if there was a buzzword in the tech economy last year, it was sharing. And in the wake of ride-sharing and home-sharing, there are whole new worlds of sharing just waiting for a venture capitalist's wink to be shared with us. One of the newest seeks to solve a not-so-new problem, the cost as well as the affordability of child care. Kimberly Woodcock-Guillaume of CPR's Too Many Names desk fills us in. Kim. Milton, for women trying to combine motherhood with a career in a stagnant economy, the problem of child care is... A continuing problem. Absolutely. <laughs> the cost of child care is rising faster than I don't know what. And that's even if you can find a facility. Which many people can't. Way. And that's where Jarvis Nagel came in. Where did he come in from? <laughs> Not really important. But he saw a need and a cool new way to fill it. So, the really golden insight was that most stay-at-home mothers are caring for one or most two young children, unless they're Mormons or Orthodox Jewish or something weird. They're totally in caring mode, and they've probably got some caring to spare and share. Mom's probably on her smartphone a lot of the day anyway, so it's easy for her to respond to a tweet or a text seeking quick temporary child care. A few hours with one or two extra children to care for, you know, she's able to pay for, you know, a week's diaper service or something. And that's the whole idea behind care share. That and the profit split. Kim, isn't part of the cost of conventional child care involved in background checks and in insurance and licensing? Well, not as much as you'd think, Milton. A lot of it is just rent. And unless the mother who responds to your tweet or text is homeless, that's a non-issue. And since somebody, a husband or a boyfriend, has already gone to the trouble of, of, of checking out your care sharer and entrusting her with at least one child, as Jason puts it, there's no need for us to reinvestigate the wheel. <laughs> well, is this system, uh, by the way, what's it called? It's called care share. <laughs> There's that rhyme again. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Is care share already operating or is it uh, still just a concept? No, it's, it's totally operating in three Midwestern cities. Here's Charlene, who uh, used care share a couple of times already for her 18-month-old toddler, Preston. I didn't have to book a long time in advance. I could use PayPal. It was totally on my way to Pilates. And Preston learned a really valuable lesson that the world is full of strangers. 
a part of that lesson, Milton, mm-hmm. is that uh, not all care sharers are uh, moms. Oh, yes. Uh, Preston's care sharer or care sharer. Care. It works both ways. <laughs> yes, it does. But Preston was cared for by a man, right? Yes, by a house husband whose care share name is Big John. Well, does Jarvis Nagel have any reassurance for parents who might have some concerns about leaving their child with a strange man? Oh, he sure does. This is so totally ethical because every care share experience is peer-reviewed. Anything even looks wrong, boom, you go straight down to the bottom of the queue. It'll be a very long time before you get a text or tweet from us again. Well, it sounds like he's a real believer in the sharing economy, Kim. He's a mover and a shaker. Mm. Uh, His next project, Milton, aims at the role neighbors used to fill in our lives. You know, the person nearby who could lend you some milk or go to the store to pick something up for you. Sure. And and what's Nagel's idea? Uh, Simply that there are still people sitting around with spare would-be neighbor time. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just might not be in your neighborhood, but (laughs) you could uh, tweet or text them to do a chore or lend you an egg or something. And uh, that could be over real quickly. So they'd be sharing their neighboring skills with uh, a much larger neighborhood. Mm. Yes, exactly. It's been beta testing in Cleveland, Ohio, and Lansing, Michigan uh, for the last couple of months. You know what it's called? What? Nuber. (laughs) Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you, Milton. And, of course, we're all welcome. And for this week, that's all that's been said and done on Said and Done. Now, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. Follows like the day follows the night, or the night follows the day, one or the other. Somebody's following something. The Boston Red Sox have said the franchise was sickened, sickened you say, by the conduct of an ignorant few. This is an apology to Baltimore Orioles Orioles center fielder Adam Jones. Hours after Jones told USA Today he was the target of racial slurs as a bag of peanuts was thrown at him. Quote, the Red Sox want to publicly apologize to Adam Jones and the entire Orioles organization for what occurred at Fenway Park Monday night, the Red Sox said in a statement. No player should have an object thrown at him on the playing field, nor be subjected to any kind of racism at Fenway Park. Take that stuff to the parking... No, they didn't say that. The Red Sox have zero tolerance for such inexcusable behavior, and our entire organization and our fans are sickened by the conduct of an ignorant few. Also, the peanuts made us a bit nauseous. No, they didn't say that either. After initially denying abandoning Nigerian students in Istanbul Ataturk Airport, Turkey, Airport, Turkey, the management of Turkish Airlines has vehemently apologized to the management of Liston International College in Abuja, Nigeria, for its poor treatment of 22 college pupils and instructors at the airport. They were Nigerian delegates to the United States for a robot competition. They were abandoned at the airport for almost 48 hours. Count your blessings, Dr. Dow. An apology letter made available to the uh, press, signed by the general manager of the airline in Nigeria, apologized for the mistreatment of the students and their instructors in Turkey. The uh, manager, Mr. Seaton, personally took the letter apology to school with some of the airline staff. The airline also promised to embark on a project within the school premises. And they provided the school's management staff with three complimentary tickets to any country of their choice as compensation. The uh, 
employee, uh, airline sent an employee from its Abuja office to Istanbul to investigate the matter, regretting the inconvenience made it out to the Nigerian delegates who were forced to sleep in the airport with just blankets after airline officials collected $40 sleeping fee from each of the students. That was to receive permission to sleep in the resting area of the airport. In its apology, Turkish Airlines management had difficulty justifying the collection of the $40. I'll bet. They should ask uh, Oscar Munoz to help out. Chris Pratt, an actor, is apologizing, and he insists not because his publicist demanded it. He took to Instagram this week to extend an earnest, long-winded I'm sorry to his 11 million-plus followers, particularly those who are hard of hearing. He had posted a promotional video for the second installment of a superhero movie. He fielded public backlash for his quip about closed captioning. The video had featured frame-by-frame captions, but he t- uh, did Pratt urges viewers to turn up the volume and not just read the subtitles. Many in the hearing-impaired community saw that as dismissive, given that some don't have that option. In his apology post, Pratt explained that unex- unthinkingly he'd only f- phrased the request in that way so people wouldn't scroll past the video on mute. However, he added, I now realize doing so is incredibly insensitive to the many folks out there who depend on subtitles. So I want to apologize. He went on to stress that the apology was not a publicist-promoted act. As always, I control my social media and nobody else, and I'm doing this because I'm actually really sorry. Apologies are powerful. I don't dole them out willy-nilly. This is one of those moments where I screwed up, and here's me begging your pardon. And here's willy-nilly to help. No. It's the second apology Pratt has granted in the last few weeks. Last month, he offered a mea culpa for suggesting that Hollywood doesn't tell stories about blue-collar Americans. They only tell stories about machines. You were right about that, Chris. Pratt. YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki has apologized to advertisers who have found their commercials running near objectionable content. Here's where News Corp could help out, don't you think? A number of major advertisers have pulled the ad dollars from the Google unit. Google owns YouTube. Until they can get better control of ad placement. You told us to do better when it comes to ad placements. Wojcicki said during YouTube's presentation, during the new fronts in New York, we've taken your feedback to heart. Apologies for letting you down. We can and we will do better. YouTube will be launching more than 40 original series created by popular YouTube creators that can be sponsored by advertisers. Advertiser-friendly content. Don't you want more of that? Dateline, Germantown, Tennessee. What could have happened in Germantown? Leaders of the Germantown... Do you want to take a minute to imagine the possibilities? You're right. Leaders of the Germantown School District are apologizing for a photo that appears in the Houston Middle School yearbook that shows two students dressed in Nazi-type uniforms with a swastika on the hat of one of them. Imagine, in Germantown. Who would have thunk it? According to the school district, the students were taking part in a program designed to study racism, prejudice, and anti-Semitism. An apology from the district said, quote, it does not condone the placement of photos of this nature in any school publication and apologizes to anyone who is offended by the insensitive image, unquote. The school district of Germantown. Chicago Aviation Commissioner Ginger Evans, this is continuing the parade of apologies to Dr. Dow, apologized this week for the city employees who forcibly removed him from the United Airlines plane. Ginger Evans told the U.S. Senate Commerce Subcommittee that the removal of Dr. Dow and his reaccommodation, according to United, 
was, quote, deeply saddening and personally offensive. The department has suspended four employees in the incident and said neither the Chicago PD nor airport security officers will go on aircraft to deal with customer service matters, including overbooking situations, which, of course, that wasn't. Speaking of airlines, Delta apologized this week after a couple said they were kicked off an overbooked flight with their two toddlers so their seats could be given to waiting passengers. Delta said in a statement, it was sorry for the unfortunate experience after Brian and Brittany Shear, no relation, posted a video online showing them being told to leave a flight or be arrested during a, a dispute over a seat they had bought for their teenage son, but then put a toddler in the seat instead. Deadline Berlin, Germany's defense minister, Ursula von der Leyen, apologized for the tone of her criticism of the military over its handling of a racism case as she sought to contain a divisive furor in the build-up to national elections. Von der Leyen earlier this week criticized what she called weak leadership in the military after an officer was arrested on suspicion of planning a racist attack. This wasn't in Germantown. This was in Germany. Soldiers' groups reacted to her criticism with dismay, and politicians said she bore responsibility. During a meeting with 100 top generals and admirals, von der Leyen said she should have prefaced her remarks by recognizing the indispensable service of the armed forces. I'm sorry I didn't do it. I regret it, she told the officers. She said she remained concerned about a culture that allowed the suspect to continue his career despite racist ideas contained in his master's thesis and that failed to crack down on hazing and sexual abuse. In other cases, cases focused political and media attention on fears over racism in the German military. Not in Germantown. Elsewhere, uh, those are the apologies of the week, but elsewhere in the German army, German investigators have found Nazi-era military memorabilia in a barracks, similar to that found in the garrison of an army officer arrested on suspicion of a planning a racially motivated attack. This broadens the scandal about right-wing extremism in the German army. Spiegel reported a display cabinet containing Nazi-era Wehrmacht helmets stood outside the canteen at a barracks in southwest Germany. In addition, pictures of soldiers from the Wehrmacht, the Nazi regime's army, hung on the wall of a room in the barracks where Wehrmacht pistols, more helmets, and military decorations were on display. Investigators found a similar room at a barracks in the French town of Ilkir, where the officer arrested last week on suspicion of planning the racially motivated attack was arrested. It's just collector-type stuff. Maybe we are all Germantown. I'm CPR anchor emeritus Chris Edwards. I think the hallmark of Milton Getzler's interviews was always his patience. He was never in a hurry for a gotcha moment, as in this interview with an Olympics mascot designer, even when the gotcha moment never came. From CPR, public radio for the rest of your senses, this is Said and Done. Said and Done, CPR's weekly audio magazine of the arts and the artsy. I'm Milton Getzler in Washington, where the arts go to live. The design of mascots, those icons that may represent sports teams or even major sporting events, is a billion-dollar business. But mascot design is also an art form. And our guest today is an artist whose creations may represent one of the world's largest and currently most controversial events the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Sergio Salgado, 
Welcome to Said and Done. Well, thank you, Milton. Such a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. Sergio, I noted the air of controversy that surrounds these Olympics. Your designs weren't announced as the official mascot designs last November. Uh, no, that's right, Milton. Uh, last year, the committee unveiled designs that represented native plants and animals of Brazil and were named after two Brazilian music giants. Mm. But uh, there were second thoughts, given what's been going on with the preparations for the game since then. There have been so many publicity about uh, problems in the Olympic venues, especially the water venues around Rio. Well, you're referring to the persistent problems with the pollution of the bay, where the sailing and other aquatic events are scheduled? Mm, yes, and it was uh, thought that maybe... The mascots could help uh, put a happier face on these stories to reassure visitors and their kids that these games will be fun no matter what's in the water. After all, uh, barring any uh, unforeseen accidents, all of our spectators will be on dry land throughout their Olympic experience. So, were you trying to reassure fans about the safety of the water? Oh, no. That's for public health officials and other such dignitaries. No, my job was just to put a, a spirit of play back in the foreground because staging the Olympics costs so much that if it's not about fun and play and happiness, uh, they really become a political football. And football is really the country's national sport. Yeah, that's right, but not relevant. Well. So I designed new characters to put a happy face on these stories, uh, to, as we say in Brazil, uh, take the lemons and make lemonage. So your characters are... Well, the mascot for the Olympic Games is Effluvio. He's happy, he's playful. As you can see, he's a one-eyed green fellow who looks like the creatures that live at the bottom of lakes and bays. Well, he looks a little like uh, drawings I've seen of the uh, so-called Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> yes, but he's got a big, happy smile. He's got green hair that looks like uh, tangled seagrass. He's got a dead fish in his left hand, and he's hoisting a sofa with his right hand. Mm. Now, are those symbols of some of the sporting events or of the virtues embodied in athletic excellence? Uh, no, they're things that you'll find in great numbers in the bay. Mm. Uh, they're going to be there come next year, so we celebrate them lightheartedly in the spirit of fun and good sportsmanship. Well, how exactly do they represent sportsmanship? Well, uh, the fish was swimming at the absolute peak of his ability in trying to leave the bay. Mm -hmm. And the sofa is where the champions rest after their victory. This is how I visualize it. And uh, Effluvio shares that vision with the world's children. And to be uh, ultimately environmentally friendly when the figure is manufactured for souvenirs, he's made out of materials rescued from the bay itself and completely sanitized. Now, he's the mascot for the Olympics. That's right. But you also designed a new symbol for the Paralympic Games, which will also be staged in Rio. Yes, he's uh, Effluvio's best friend. His name is Poopy. He's a happy-go-lucky fellow. He, he looks like a big cocoa bean, very jolly. Well, and, and, and looking at this drawing, it, it uh, seems as if he's wearing a hat that's uh, somewhat reminiscent of what the old uh, movie star Carmen Miranda used to wear. Yes, she was a big favorite in Brazil uh, before she went to Hollywood. 
Hollywood. She always wore a hat with a fruit on it. Uh, Poopy has fruit and vegetables and maybe even little pieces of meat on his hat. So he represents everything that people eat to get big and strong and compete in the Paralympics. And he's brown. Yes, like the cocoa bean. And of course... And his name is Poopy, a very popular name in Latin America, which denotes fun, laughter, and congenial association and an appreciation of art, and music, and drama. Poopy is a born leader and a visionary. There are 460 people named Poopy in the United States. This is, this is all on the Internet. Has the Brazilian Olympic Committee officially accepted Fluvio and Poopy as the New mascots for the 2016 games? Uh, they're having discussions with the manufacturing licensees to see if they can retool in time to make the vegetables and the fish look right. Well, they're m- more stylized than ultra-realistic. Yes, they're in the spirit of a, a cartoonish kind of sea sprite. And, uh, and, and you uh, mentioned environmentally friendly. Mm. Is Poopy going to be manufactured out of anything salvaged from the bay? <laughs> no. No, I've been advised in the strongest possible terms against even suggesting that. Sergio Salgado, we'll be looking for Effluvio and Poopy next summer in Rio. Uh, so too will I. Thank you. And for today, that's all that's been said and done on Said and Done. We had help today from the Creativity Consortium, finding the algorithms that make art for you. I'm Milton Getzler. In my 25th year of slushing my siblings, join us next time for another Ride on the Right Side of the Brain. I'm said and done. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio. Now, news of the atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, save, too safe to meet. Save, save, too safe to meet. Addy the atom isn't with us today. He's small enough to try to sneak into Jazz Fest. Deadline Plymouth, Mass. A giant of limitless power at man's command. Man is building a brighter future for his children and his children's children in the new world of the atomic age. I guess Addy sent us a message. Deadline Plymouth, Massachusetts, the only nuclear power plant in that state, won't have to comply with certain safety requirements as it prepares to shut down. It got a pass on precautions put in place after Fook. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission says that Pilgrim won't have to upgrade its vent system before it closes in two years, despite not meeting all standards. It will also be exempted from seismic and flooding regulations established after Fook. An NRC spokesman says the plant doesn't have time to complete necessary upgrades, and they wouldn't meaningfully improve safety. We'll all just cross our fingers. Dateline Buchanan, New York, was a little over a year ago when Indian Point Unit 2 reactor core baffle bolts were found missing or impaired, causing opponents of the nuclear plant to raise their voices against continued operation. At that time, 227 of 830 bolts were found either degraded or missing. Since then, an agreement has been reached to permanently shut down Units 2 and 3 in a few years. Now, it's been learned that 256 of the 832 bolts that keep the inner plates of the reactor core from coming apart in Unit 3 were impaired. The number of bolts to be replaced at Unit 3 this year is consistent with the number of bolts that were replaced last year at Unit 2, according to the owner. Entergy, independent engineering experts concluded both units operated safely 
and that the bolts in both units performed their intended function at all times while the plants were running. A uh, activist group has been in the lead along with the governor to close down the facility. Unit 3 has been offline for weeks for a scheduled refueling. We need to know why these two reactors are the only ones to suffer such problems, say spokespeople for the activist group. Several mistakes were made leading up to an incident in November in which radioactive waste was not correctly packaged as it was trucked to a commercial disposal site at the Hanford nuclear site, according to the NRC. Energy Northwest was temporarily barred by state regulators from sending waste to the site on the reservation land after a shipment from the power plant was more radioactive than claimed on the shipping manifest. That's a bright red lie. Dayline Tokyo, Japan's nuclear power industry, is at its most critical juncture. Demand for new reactors has dried up in Japan following Fuk, and dismal prospects for export are dual menaces threatening the fate of Japan's nuclear technology. I was beginning to tear up at the thought. No domestic construction on a new reactor has begun for the past eight years. The uh, Fook thing blew a hole in the industry's plans, according to Nikkei Asian Review. The picture for exports look just as gloomy. Now, Japan reactor manufacturers face the possible loss of their technological viability. Meanwhile, Japan's nuclear authority has approved decommissioning plans for five aging reactors at four power plants, the first such approvals since a regulation was implemented after Fook to stop the reaction Reactors from operating after 40 years. It'll take about 30 years to complete the decommissioning. Dateline Lower Always Creek, Alloways Creek, sorry, in New Jersey. A worker deliberately attempted to fix an error he'd made while conducting tests at a New Jersey nuclear reactor. Caught, but that caused the plant to shut down two years ago, according to federal officials. Now, former employees' action prompted the Hope Creek generating station to automatically shut down September of 2015. The worker later lied about what he did. He made an error while performing a surveillance test, deliberately attempted to correct the error rather than comply with the procedural guidance to stop and inform management, said the NRC. We rely on plant employees to take the appropriate actions when on the job. This does not appear to have happened in this case. Hope Creek is one of three reactors operated by PSEG Nuclear at its artificial island generating station in Salem County. New Jersey. Based on this event, the individual involved is no longer employed here at Artificial Island. That's nice of them to point that out. Says Nicolas Evangelio at the Norwegian Institute for Air Research. We don't need to worry. His team has conducted the first global survey of radiation exposure caused by the Fook thing. His team has calculated the approximate exposure of everyone on Earth to two radioactive isotopes of cesium using all the data available. More than 80% of the radiation was deposited in the ocean and the poles, so I think the global population got the least exposure, he told a meeting. He's estimated the dose most individuals received to be 0.1 millisievert. We got one extra X-ray each, he says. Is that an average? In Japan, the average person's radiation level was 0.5 millisieverts, the annual recommended limit for breathing in naturally occurring radon gas. Doses were higher for residents of Fuk and neighboring areas, of course. But Evangelio says of the effects on wildlife around the plant might be more severe. There's that ocean, after all. Already increased levels of radiation around Fuk have been linked to declines in bird populations, also reports 
of declines in other species such as insects and some mammals. Chernobyl was worse, he said. The fallout was larger and it fell upon more densely populated areas. The commercial startup of the first of the four nuclear reactors that South Korea's KEPCO, not TEPCO, but KEPCO, is building in the United Arab Emirates is going to be delayed because the local operating company is not ready to run the reactors. Four reactors have been built on time and on schedule, a rare feat in a nuclear industry plagued by cost overruns and multi-year delays. First one scheduled to be completed this month. But, you see, the uh, joint venture to operate the plant is struggling to get an operating license. Could delay the startup. When the deal was negotiated, the APR-1400 reactor model that KEPCO offered existed on paper. But the first model of the new series was set to go online in South Korea in 2013. That would have given the UAE folks a few years to monitor the Korean plant and start training staff. But the construction of the Korean plant was delayed three years due to a safety scandal in late 2012. So the UAE people are not trained. Oh, it's clean, cheap, safe. Too late to be trained. Our friend, the Atom. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave, on the Mighty 104 in Berlin on Soho Radio in London. Around the world, via the Internet, Two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it. HarryShare.com and KCSN.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it'd be just like Bitlin Getzler getting to be a special correspondent, if you'd agree to join with me then. Well, you already. Thank you very much. Uh huh.
tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desk. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, I have my own server. No, I don't. A playlist of the music heard here on. And your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for mom or dad or that grad. All at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWN on New Orleans' flagship station for the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.